0: Let's take a walk through a week worth of the NFL's media cycle. I know, I know, I'm gonna hear it all again. Why are we talking about the NFL on a Criterium Racing podcast? How can this possibly be relevant? Give me a few seconds. I promise you this loops all back together and it'll totally be worth it. So let's look at it. The NFL is by far the most financially successful and stable sporting league in the United States. Even perennial losing teams like my own Chicago Bears are profitable and have loyal fan bases. Every week, 17 million eyeballs on average tune in to watch a game. Despite these games having only 60 minutes on the play clock, they take over three hours and 20 minutes worth of time to play. A Wall Street Journal study from the early 2010s found that of that three hours and 20 some odd minutes, only 11 minutes of it was actual game time. TV stations played more time in replays, 17 minutes per game than they did actual game time. So you are effectively watching grown men walk around a grass field for three hours in some odd minutes, rather than anything else in your life. But despite the obvious ludicrousness of that, the NFL's media rights alone sold for $100 billion. What the NFL shares with crit racing is effectively a weekly news cycle. Games or races happen on the weekends, and we spend the next six or so days talking about what we just saw. So let's look at how they, the NFL, talks about it as an obvious example of success and what maybe we in crit racing can emulate. The moment the final whistle blows in an NFL game, you get instant reaction interviews from players and coaches as they are leaving the field. This is coupled with a panel discussion uh, from broadcasters and former pros who break down replay clips of critical moments in the game you just watched. This all happens as a crew of about 150 to 200 engineers, producers, directors, technicians break down equipment which provided 360 degrees of comprehensive coverage of a space that's only 100 yards long and 50 yards wide. Reporters descend into the locker rooms and to a press conference where they get to talk to the coaches and players even more about what just happened. A couple hours later, your local news channel, WGN, for me, when I was growing up, has a five minute or so long replay presentation of what just happened in the game you just watched in the press conferences that you were also watching in the instant reactions that you were watching. They just show it all over to you again so you can see it for a third or fourth time by the time you go to bed at 11 o'clock. Monday morning dawns, the Post, The Times, The Tribune has two columns on the front page of the sports section recapping the game that just happened. Then sports Center gets into the action with the signature broadcast, which features not only a long but a short clip of highlights from the game in its one-hour-long show. Now that the news has been spread, and it's presumed that every man, woman, or child who even semi-cares about what happened in that game can recite the score in a few key moments. That's when the analysts, the commentators, the opinion makers get involved. These are the Stephen A's, the Undisputed's, the Pardon the Interruptions, and whatever the heck around the horn is. For the next two to three days, they take the facts that you know that everybody else has reported and tell you what to think about them. They give you the fodder for all the beef that you will have with friends, coworkers, family members, people who are betting on games with you, whatever it happens to be. They give you the beef so that you can go and spread that even further. In the background, while this is all happening, stats are being compiled, data is being crunched from last week's games. Every conceivable means of doing math is being done. When you think that they've run out of ways to do math and count numbers, determine mean, median, and average, they come up with something totally new to do the same thing with. Why else will we have QB ratings or yards after catch stats and things like that? Then comes Thursday and Friday, the analysts, the commentators, and the blowhards turn up the prognostication volume. You are told the names of key players, all about mismatches, injury reserve lists, whatever it happens to be. You are so well-educated as a viewer and fan that about what is about to happen that you are capable of going onto the Internet and creating a fake football team so that you can bet against your friends on who is smarter than the other person when it comes down to the news and the opinions and the blowhards. Then Sunday morning arrives all over again. 150 to 200 camera operators, audio techs, producers, boom operators and the like, set up for the four hours of coverage that you are going to watch that day. They are going to have everything covered every conceivable angle of the field will be there for your viewing pleasure. Players are interviewed, coaches are peppered with the same questions that they've already answered multiple times, again and again and again. Then, about four hours before the game starts, before anybody is in the stadium, a panel of well-dressed men retell you everything all over again, and this goes on from August to February, every week, year after year. And we eat it and all the commercials that come along with it right up because we love sports. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows, the internet's top-tier only, top-tier collection of independent cycling media. Go to WideAnglePodium.com. You can find out all about the other shows on the network, including Slow Ride Podcast, The Grodio, Cyclocross Radio, Nowhere Fast. You can become a subscriber and supporter of the network, and we would love it if you do. Please financially support these content creator-owned efforts so that we can continue to bring you the top quality coverage that we do. This week, our show is brought to you by Source Endurance, source-e.net. It is the Internet's number one endurance cycling coaching resource for you. Go there, take a look at the full set of offerings that they have, including a brand new announcement about their partnership with Tulsa Tough, America's premier weekend of crit racing per chance. You can go to Source-E, find the Tulsa Tough prep package, put it into your cart, get ready to go fast, turn right a little bit, then turn left, then turn right again, then turn left, then turn right. Go up Crybaby Hill, do it all. Use the promo code CRITERIUMNATION, all one word, for $50 off your first month of coaching. Today's episode is with Brad Soner. We all know Brad. We all know his voice. He is the broadcast guy for Crit Racing. We want to talk about how we can take Criterium Racing from where it is right now, with the media that it has right now, and turn it into what the NFL has. Is it possible? Is it something that we are capable of doing? Where are we? What more do we need to do? These are the questions, and this is why the analogy with the NFL is so readily important and so timely. We stand at the beginning of a new year of bike racing. We stand ready to make crit racing even more awesome than it was last year in 2020. Two, we have the people who are capable of doing it. The athletes are ready, the teams are ready, the events are ready. Now it's up to us in the media to educate you and to make you, the fans, ready for all of it. It is our job, our responsibility to make you smarter, to bring criterion Racing from where it was to where it can be. And we're doing all of that right now. There are a few people in bike racing, in the bike racing world, whose voices do not need an introduction, but I'm going to give Brad Sona here an introduction as he is Crit Racing's broadcast voice of America. How are you doing tonight, Brad?
1: Well, if you're going to talk like that, I feel like I should use my announcer voice and I'm doing well. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry.
0: In all seriousness, you are the guy that most of us will recognize when we think about Criterium racing, live streaming specifically. You know, there are a few people whose voices are as easily easily recognizable as yours. Frankie Andreu, Dave Towley, to a certain extent, Ellen Noble has become one of those. Rassam Bahati, uh, Lauren Tucker-Hall. But I'm starting to run out of names. Why do you think that is, that there are only so few broadcasters in cycling compared to, I don't know, we could list off a hundred broadcasters in football, basketball, and baseball.
1: Well, I think like a lot of things in bike racing, the shortest and easiest answer is money. Um, You know, money is going to attract talent. Money is what's going to keep people in the sport. Uh, And it's tough to make a living as an announcer. So unless you have, you know, something else going, unless you have a side income or multiple streams of income, a lot of people find it tough to, you know, to make a living as an announcer. And so You move on, you get another job, and a big part of being the announcer or, you know, a popular announcer is being able to do all these events. And when you have a job or you have other obligations, it makes it really tough to, you know, to commit to the schedule, just like being a bike racer. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, yeah, you know, I think there's uh, part of it is is uh, the lack of funds in the sport, but it's also an extremely demanding job. I mean, there's a lot of travel. It's the best job in the world. You get to you know go to bike races for a living, but uh, it takes a lot of commitment to be a full time bike race announcer,
0: as it does to be a full time bike racer and even a part time podcaster. The amount of time that goes into doing as something as what many would consider to be simple as talking is actually mind boggling. You know, when it comes down to doing your homework, for example, doing your homework, getting ready to go to, uh, you know, whether it's Intelligentsia or Gateway or Sunny King or any live streamed event, you know, how much homework for you goes into getting ready to just start talking about what you're seeing in front of you
1: a lot of it is you know built-in knowledge a lot of it is stuff that you, we pick up from just years of announcing races the data available to us as announcers is not great uh, or as i'm sure you know any media person you know if you're looking for results or stats or anything you're, you're pretty much limited to race results or you know usa cycling's website you can pull an athlete result but you know, we're we're really not good at tracking data and uh, doing statistics and finding insights from data. You know, we don't know who led the most laps. We don't know who hit the fastest speed at these races. Aside from, you know, the end result, we really don't have a lot of data available to us to tell us stories about races. So that's where you go into, you know, the personal part of bike racing and, and really, you know, learning about the athletes. And that's what I spend a lot of my time doing. Uh, there's not as much direct research that goes into it as people think. I think a lot of people picture uh, you know, us announcers studying up some magic book with all these stats and information about the riders. But the truth is, it's extremely difficult to find that information you know, let alone study it. Athletes' hometowns, you know, even ages or things like that are sometimes hard to come by. So, you know, a lot of it is just stuff that you pick up from being there and being on the road to airport shuttles and hotel elevators and, you know, the, the bar after the race. And that's, that's where a lot of the research that you hear on the broadcast comes from is just sort of this, this body of knowledge that we pick up from a full season of racing.
0: As I've learned from Alan and Celine, the sound pony after Tulsa is a pretty good, valuable tool for for crowdsourcing information
1: hundred percent. And, you know, it certainly gets the athletes in, uh, a more relaxed state, let's say, uh, after the race. But, you know, that's where you, you really see who these athletes are and you get to sort of see their personality shine a little bit in the way that you never will on a live stream, like any professional, you know, when, when these athletes show up to work, they're there to work and they're not there to, you know, joke around and have fun and sort of, uh, be friends. Um, and so getting, getting athletes outside of that, uh, Bubble, I guess, is a, you know, good way to get to know him. and then it becomes our job to tell those stories and convey to people, you know, he's a really interesting guy, or she has an amazing story, or you know, whatever our topics for that day are.
0: I think this is something we're going to come back to a little bit as we discuss the the concept of a fully mature bike racing media. But before we get to to talking more about specifics, I want to talk broader, more esoteric value of media. Like, what is the point of it? You know, why do you make a living off of this job? And I try to make a living off of this podcast and people in general, in the bike racing world, the entertainment industry are trying to eke out a living there. You know, before I ask the question, what is the point of media? I want to get or establish your bona fides, you know, We know that you are a broadcaster, but I don't know how many people know that you also run a media company that does provide services. So what is this company that you are the part of or the leader of?
1: Yeah, we have a company called Fiber Media. We produce live and taped sports content, mostly, including a lot of criterium live streams. That was sort of what the company was born out of was a you know just a financial vehicle to do business to start to run some of these streams out of. Uh, but that's evolved into obviously more you know more projects uh, outside of the live realm. But primarily, uh, it, you know, it exists as a live production company, and uh, we were able to do. A lot of the ACC races last year. Um, we do all USA Cycling's national championships, things like that. So yeah, I've produced a lot of uh, of criterium races in you know in the U.S.
0: And you've also got a background in media management and the business part of being a broadcaster. It's not just like you show up and somebody else hands you a a turnkey set.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, my whole life has been spent in the bike race industry. My first job when I was 14 years old was setting up fence that, you know, I was on a a fence crew that traveled around the U S and built bike races. And that's how I came to crit racing. I saw my first crit race and totally fell in love with it. So, you know, coming to the broadcast side from the event production side, um, I think really helps in the ability to, understand what these venues are going to be like because a, a bike race venue is so unique in the, you know, in the production world where nothing is pre-wired. Everything is, you know, is built the same day and torn down that night. Um, you know, it's a it's a moving arena and that's a pretty unique thing in the world of production to be able to, to pull off a production like that in such a short time span with a venue that you don't really have control over. So I think the, you know, my background of just being at so many races and really understanding also where these promoters are coming from, that there is no, you know, team of utilities that's going to come help. It's, you know, it's volunteers and bike shop employees that are that are running these races. So, you know, you have to understand that uh, y- you need to do what you can to be self-reliant and, you know, try not to put too much pressure on the promoter where, you know, I think in other sports, people would expect things to be done for them in production. But uh, we know in bike racing that that doesn't always happen.
0: So let's talk about the what is the point question. And I want to be very specific because I know enough about journalism in the media to be dangerous, but not enough to be effective. So you know we look at media and we try to paint it in the broadest brush possible about what is it and i think we need to be very specific about sports media as compared to investigative journalism political reporting you know local news and television you know sports media as as a a vehicle sports media as an organization which is telling the story of competitions you know why do you feel that these events, whether it be bike racing, baseball, football, whatever, need sports media in order to help them have relevancy?
1: Media is our almost only way out of the echo chamber that is, you know, a bike race in a town. Um, it's our only way to communicate with the outside world. It's the old adage, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to see it, you know, did it really fall? But if you can take a picture of that tree, you can share it around the world and that exponentially increases your marketing potential. And that's really what media is, all media, sports media will say is marketing. And uh, it's going to be the absolute best bang for your buck, you know, in terms of trying to get people get eyeballs on the sport of bike racing. It's going to do far better than, you know, any in-person marketing that you can do. Maybe you get 10, 20,000 people, 30,000 people to a venue to watch. Those would be numbers that most promoters would be thrilled to see outside of their fence. But numbers like that are pretty easily achievable with, you know, a few videos or podcasts or blog posts whatever it is. So it's it's the best bang for the buck in terms of how to market the sport of criterium racing, which this is all that's what this is all about is you know getting more people into the sport and keeping them there and and media is the way that we interact with our sport media is the way that we follow our sport any sport uh, because you can't be a fan if if you don't know what's going on and so media is the thing that will allow us to be fans of the sport of criterium racing
0: so you know one of the things that we live with now n- neither of us grew up with it but we live with it now is the concept of social media you know a a self-broadcasting version of the news. And I don't know about you, but I spend a certain portion of my day every day trolling Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, looking at this the individual feeds of different, you know, actors, players, riders who I follow and find interesting, their teams, you know, race venues. And we've got this social media, which is pushing a narrative out at us. But at the same time, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, but our job as the media is to take all of that information and filter out what is there and present to the listeners, the fans, the watchers, whoever happens to be the unfiltered, the unvarnished version of those stories, because like it or not, certain athletes will you know, twist the story to fit their narrative about their particular brand. And a certain team will do the same thing. And that's not a negative comment towards them. It's just reality. You want to post about winning. And if you don't win, you want to post about something that makes you feel good. But our job as the media is to give you that independent, more neutral. I would love to be completely neutral, but more neutral perspective. Do you agree with that?
1: I think it depends on what kind of media you're trying to create. If you bill yourself as a news outlet and you know you're providing unbiased news to fans, then yeah, absolutely, your job is to you know report and um, try and entertain while you're at it. But there's also a huge part of sports media reserved for opinion pieces. I mean, the the some of the top performing media properties are things like undisputed, you know, Skip and Shannon arguing about who's the best quarterback in the league right now. And that conversation, you know, opinionated conversation as it may be, drives a lot of engagement in the sport and helps people develop their own opinions because maybe they never thought about who the best quarterback or let's say in our case, the best sprinter is. But, you know, until you hear people arguing those opinions, it helps us create, you know, develop sort of a broader viewpoint of the sport and and hear what other people are thinking and, um, you know, try and continue that conversation, which is which is really what makes sports great. I mean, we like arguing about our team or our rider or, you know, who's going to win next weekend Um, and media plays a huge part in that. And all it's really doing is amplifying those conversations that are happening in, you know, on trainers across the country and discord chat groups on group rides. Um, you know, the, the conversations are happening already, but they're just not being sort of broadcast by media outlets. So there's a a huge importance for some real journalism and real reporting in the sport, because that's what keeps everyone honest. And we absolutely need these roles because that's, you know, it's a a core tenet of everything that, um, you know, we have checks and balances and, there, and there's there's an eye keeping keeping an eye on things. But uh, there's also a huge need for. A conversation around the sport, and that's the other part that sports media fills in.
0: Well, let's talk about that a little bit because when you do go into the traditional media forms and you look at, you know, cycling tips or cycling news, Velo News, a lot of the older guard versions of sports media, and I understand that we've seen a huge shakeup in all of those platforms since some of these news articles that I may talk about here in a second have been published, but. You know, last year, when it came down to American crit racing or American road racing, there was a somewhat absence of a lot of critical discussion about races. Not just who won, but how the races were run, how the races were won. We did end up getting a lot of what I would call regurgitation of press releases. Not every team has the marketing department of Legion of Los Angeles. That's not a dig against Legion. That's awesome that they've got the money to hire press and have somebody come up with PR statements for them. It's just sometimes you got to be critical about Cycling Tips or VeloNews for picking that up and throwing that out there as a news story without thinking too critically about it. You know, what is the obligation on the part of the media to take the story in and go, okay, this makes sense, this doesn't make sense, I need to dive down deeper.
1: You know, I have a hard time faulting these outlets because I know how slim their budgets are and I know how tough it is to report, but unfortunately, You know with great power comes great responsibility and those outlets did you know and and still do have great power in terms of the influence that they have on the general at least american you know bike racing psyche and so with that comes a responsibility to at least tell you know both sides of the story or or make some effort to independently verify you know trust but verify is the thing that we always say in, in journalism and it's an important tenet because you just have, you know, it's your responsibility to make sure that uh, that what you're printing is, in fact, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It's, it's really hard to do with a small staff. But if you're going to publish something about it, you know, I think it's important that we don't give free passes to athletes um, and we do ask tough questions. And, you know, the last three or four scandals in criterium racing, I think, have gone largely under or unreported. Um, And that there really wasn't a whole lot of strong journalism being done around these events.
0: And I can only imagine what you're actually referencing there, because when I sit here and think about things that are public, you know, there's one thing. But then I can think of a whole series of what I would consider to be scandals that have flown very much under the radar, largely because... We don't know anything that's come from the national governing body. You know, we do know about rider suspensions from Gateway Cup, for example, but none of that has been published by the national governing body. You know, we've got things like the Olivia Ray doping admission and the you know Salt Lake City fight and the resulting, you know, opinions that came out of that. So I have no idea what you're actually talking about there. You know, could you give us a little bit more insight into what you feel is being underreported?
1: I think you answered it right there. I mean, you know, the fact that that you're not sure what we're talking about when we talk about a prevailing scandal is uh, pretty indicative of of where we are in the sport. Those are all great examples and they're all part of what I'm talking about. But you know, it's the ability to just do basic reporting that is, is not being done. No one's calling USA Cycling, asking for updates. No one's holding their feet to the fire, which is a big part of, you know, what a role of a journalist is supposed to do and keep an eye on a group like USA Cycling and Governing Body, you know, to put pressure on them. Um, I have not seen a whole lot of articles that say, you know, we asked USA Cycling for comment, but they didn't get back to us. But even that is enough to let USA Cycling know, like, hey, people are watching, you know, we have questions, we we want answers to these things. But, you know, we don't really have a champion that, uh, has been able to ask those hard questions. And, you know, part of that also is because we don't have anyone that has a legal department that's going to back them up and that can pursue these things with, you know, no fear of being sued. I'm sure, you know, it's, it's, uh, you don't have to be in the wrong to get sued, you know, and, and that's a huge tactic for a lot of organizations and something that turns a lot of journalists off because, um, just the prospect of getting sued whether you know it's legitimate or not can be a a pretty major financial event for uh you know for a journalist. So <laughs> that's part of it too that you know they there there aren't a lot of journalists with the resources backing them up.
0: You know insurance is exceptionally expensive as I've been told from my neighbor journalist who does have it and It also goes along with a quip from one of my favorite Supreme Court cases is that you should never pick a fight with somebody who buys ink by the barrel, which assumes that the media is more powerful than the individual. But in that breath, I kind of wonder in this new age where we're talking about cycling media and limited budgets and workforces getting cut, you know, dramatically in some cases, do we have that same power differential? Which leads us to the second kind of topic here, which is this idea of a mature media versus whatever we have right now. So I want to start broad question, narrowing down to the focus here, like a funnel. So when it comes to American cycling media in this landscape, do you think we do have what would be or could be defined as a mature media landscape?
1: Not even close. Not even within sight of where we are right now it all goes back to this conversation and i just i don't see a lot of conversations being had about criterion racing we've had pieces and parts along the way like the live streaming you know that was a, a big chunk and that was really nice to have while we had it but where did you go sunday after the race to talk about what you watched on the live stream where did you go monday to digest you know what you were able to talk about on sunday where did you go tuesday to hear from from the athletes and their perspective about the race you know that you watched on the live stream on saturday and so while it was a good start unfortunately it was a dead end and until we have this sort of revolving media product that's going to keep our interest until the next week until the next race i would argue that you know the media landscape is is incomplete and that's kind of where we are right now because you can, you can follow these races as best you can, but you know, aside from your podcast coming out, there's, there's not a lot of chances to, you know, hear about other parts of the sport.
0: But we were all led to believe, and you know, maybe we convinced ourselves that this was the truth is that the live stream was it. That's all we needed in crit racing. Yep. And then suddenly ESPN was coming and, and. And the the uh, drive to survive version of crit racing was coming. Is that just not the case? Is the live stream not the end all be all of mature media?
1: And the, the truth is, you know, it, it has to be part of a of a larger ecosystem. And you alluded to another you know phenomenon that I've seen across a lot of sports, which is the the drive to survive theorem. That you know, if we just do the Netflix documentary sports going to take off just like F1. But, you know, that did so well for F1 because people had an exceptional live broadcast to come to. And the Netflix documentary got them interested, but it's you know it it has created f1 fans because they had a place to go because after they watched that documentary they could go watch the f1 race and then they could read about the drivers in espn and there was this sort of constant you know narrative of f1 racing i understood what was you know not an f1 fan until the drive to survive series came out I wouldn't say I became an F one fan, but just in you know the peripheral media that I consumed, I was able to figure out what was going on in the F one season, and you know that speaks a lot to the the larger media picture that existed out there, uh, far beyond Drive to Survive. So um, I think that's kind of the next you know we if we just had this, we would. We'd be set. You know, it used to be if we just had live streaming. That was also, you know, 15 years ago when live streaming was kind of on the you know cutting edge of technology, and it has now become an expectation, if anything. So, yeah. It, it, and now, when we think about drive to survive, you know, they're doing it with tennis, they're doing it with golf. Do we see the exponential growth in those sports that F1 saw? Not really. So, part of it is just capturing lightning in a bottle. You know, it's. Um, it's just one of those amazing pieces of content that uh, that had all the right things. It had great characters. It had a great storyline. And it was really well produced, of course. But uh, you also had a place to go afterwards to continue your, your newfound interest in F1 racing.
0: I'm wondering how many of the proposed series is and events this year are relying or building their model off of the pro lacrosse documentary if we get this out there, just like pro lacrosse, this is our last and final hope of creating the buzz that is necessary. My question for you is, okay, let's throw that part away and do the traditional mature media. Look at the things that worked that weren't lightning in a bottle. Look at baseball, look at football, look at soccer, look at basketball, look at hockey. These are Sports, I mean, the NFL media package is $100 billion. That's how much they charge just to carry their coverage, which means that the people who are buying that coverage and making it happen are making more than $100 billion in aggregate. So what are we creating when it comes down to mature media, what are the different components of it that is not just a live broadcast? Because that sounds like that's the bare minimum.
1: Yeah, I mean the broadcast is just sort of fodder for these podcasts and, and shows and, and other programming that goes on around it. Now you're not going to have a lot of that until you have a network partner that's that's really trying to invest. That's why you know these baseball and basketball ecosystems work so well because the broadcasters that buy the rights that spend a lot of money you know purchasing the rights to broadcast these then want to support that purchase with additional shows. So, you know, in and lacrosse is a great example. They got their deal with, you know, with NBC and then eventually moved to ESPN. But what it's really about is trying to get placement on things like undisputed, trying to get Skip and Shannon to talk about, you know, your lacrosse league as opposed to the NFL game or MLB game or whatever. So, you know, breaking into that mainstream conversation in in Getting spoken about in the same breath as all of these other sports is extremely difficult to do. And I always tell people we are far from the smartest or best funded people to try to do this. I mean, ask the e-scooter league how you know things are going trying to get on espn ask the national high lie league how things are going ask major league show jumping if they've been able to make any inroads in uh, you know getting espn personalities to talk about them aside from maybe some sports center top tens or things like that it's extremely difficult to break into that part of you know the conversation and that's really What people are talking about when they say, you know, making it big and becoming one of the big sports in the United States. But the truth is, until you get the buy in from what are still incredibly powerful networks, it's really hard to build an ecosystem from the ground up from scratch.
0: I remember as a student at the University of Kansas, the football season was always the low point of our sports season. Uh, we survived until November when late night happened and we start, started to get playing basketball. But the one time that Kansas made ESPN was for a non-good reasons. A football player got stuck in the drive through at Taco Bell at 2 or 3 a.m. on a Saturday night when he was trying to attack the drive through worker who didn't give him the right number of chalupas. And I fear that's where we as bike racers end up finding our way currently onto media. You know, the the mainstream, the big ones. What's it gonna take to get bike racing onto the front page of the sports section of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, the Chicago Tribune? You know, is it going to always have to be Lance Armstrong doping? Or fist fights at Salt Lake City? When do we create enough critical momentum and mass to get people to talk about Maggie Coles Lister's incredible final corner at Boise or the way that Luke Lamperde has the capacity to beat the best teams in the country by himself? You know, where do we get there? When do we get there? What is it gonna take? Is that a question that can be answered by Brad Soner? And Rob Kelly, or is that, is that just, we should get together and drink more often and talk about these questions in salons?
1: Yeah. Uh, there's the, you know, like I said, there's a lot of people out there trying to do exactly that, trying to do exactly what we're doing. There are, you know, dozens of B or C level sports startup leagues that, that want the exact same coverage that we do. And we have to remember that not only are we competing with those four or five, you know, big sports. We're also competing with 15 or 20 little sports, you know, because major league fishing has their eye on the exact same space on the front page of the sports section that we have in, you know, major league bike racing. Obviously, I don't have the answer. Uh, obviously, you don't have the answer because if either of us did, we would be sipping Mai Tais on a beach somewhere. Well, you know, handing out advice to the next league that's that's going to make it big. Um, so, You know, the answer is that there are a lot of very smart people spending a lot of money on trying to do just that. And uh, they have so far been unsuccessful. So I think that speaks to the difficulty of, you know, of achieving it.
0: So let's talk specifically about mature media in the context of the broadcast. That's your world. That's where you live. When you I, I can't remember all the events that you provided coverage for live stream coverage for last year, like soup to nuts. But I think one of them is Sonny King. So let's use Sonny King, Aniston, Alabama as an example and and see if we can go from there. When you went to Aniston, what is the size of the crew of people you brought with you in order to do the live stream job that we watched and talked about on Saturday and Sunday?
1: We have about twenty-five people on site in Aniston to do uh, the live stream. Um, now, the Aniston live stream is unique, partially because we do the amateur races during the day, so um, we have a couple, you know, shifts of uh, of crew members. But uh, yeah, for the most part, somewhere between twenty and thirty people that it takes to pull off what in you know most sports would be considered a pretty simple live stream that we do in bike racing so we we really run a a skeleton crew and it is you know chopped down to the the bare minimum of of crew needed but uh you know once you start elimini- eliminating any of those positions is when it you know the quality and reliability starts to suffer which is um you know w- that's also part of why there are so many people on site um because it takes a lot of people to make sure that the show goes off flawlessly but there is nothing worse than a botched live stream as we've learned in Criterion racing over and over and over again so um, it you know, it, it takes a lot of people, but there's just no good way to cut those corners.
0: Yeah, I can remember at Tulsa in twenty twenty-one, um, the men's race that night, first night, Blue Dome. I get a frantic message from Steven Ramirez from ButcherBox going, the live stream is down. Can you get to the corner one and start just running it off your phone? Because one of the transformers had blown. You know, there's, it, we're talking about live TV coverage. We're talking about live broadcasting and anything that can go wrong will go wrong. You, you look at an NFL production or a NCAA football production, you know, it's a hundred yard space. So it's, it's substantially smaller than anything that we deal with in Criterium Racing. They're using between 150 and 200 human beings to do what you're doing with 25 to 30. What are the roles that these twenty-five to thirty people are doing?
1: Well, here I'll uh, I'll take you through a little bit of math. We'll start with the probably largest job, which is the camera operators. We'll usually have somewhere between maybe six and eight cameras. Um, let's say six for, you know, an easy show. And part of that is is the the course design. You know, every corner that gets added to a course adds a camera and a camera operator that has to run that camera. And so when we get into these like eight corner courses, those get really, really difficult to cover and, uh, and start to get really expensive. So Sunny King is an easy course. So, you know, four corners, one person at the start finish line, one person on the backside And then we usually have a seventh camera operator in between the last corner and the finish line. Inside the truck, there is a director. That's the person that's calling the shots. Ready camera one. Take camera one. Zoom in on, you know, number 26. Give me a tighter shot on whatever camera. Talking to all the cameras. Next to them is someone called a technical director. They uh, are the person that is pushing all the buttons. Um, they have the giant switcher in front of them that you've seen inside of a TV truck. They're essentially doing the will of the director. So when the director says, "Take camera 1," the technical director will press the button to take camera 1. And then next to them is is a producer. And the producer is kind of the person that is, you know, running the editorial content of the show. Talking to the announcers, figuring out, you know, what we're going to do next, usually running commercials, things like that. And then there's also an associate director a lot of times. We usually don't use one because of cost, but if you're on a network, if you have network ins and outs and you have to hit certain times, then you would have uh, an AD there to make sure that, uh, that you're on time with all these breaks coming in and out. The next biggest thing that people probably see is replay, usually either one or two replay operators. Um, each person is watching between four and six cameras and they can you know, roll those back and build packages at any time. Um, and then graphics would be the next biggest thing. So uh, there's also a graphics operator that is putting all the graphics up and then a graphics producer that will tell them you know what to put um, on the screen. Someone that understands the sport. And then you kind of get into the uh, engineering part of things. Um, this read into like a, a video shader. This is the person that makes sure that all the cameras look the same. Um, it's like a video technician, so that when we cut between the six or eight cameras, however however many are out there, they all have the same white balance and the same brightness and the same. You know, it doesn't look like you're cutting between all these vastly different cameras. So you need someone to you know to shade all of the cameras. And then audio also important. Um, we usually have a, a what's called an A1. That's the person that's mixing the audio, turning the faders up and down. And then an A2 would be the person out in the field with the announcers, adjusting headsets, fixing microphones, things like that. The truck usually comes with two engineers, two people from uh, the company that provides the truck. They are, you know, just troubleshooting equipment, soldering cables, things like that. They're uh, sort of your your general engineers, um, and then we also have utilities, usually four or six people that are just running cable. You know, they setup crew, um, things like that. We usually, like to have an IT person on site uh, to make sure that the uplink is good, the internet's solid. We have multiple outbound. Internet links um, with automatic failover—that's you know part of the the redundancy um, and also cost of doing it right. But uh, we usually have some sort of IT person on site, and then you usually want a power person there too, um, uh, especially if it's a generator and you don't you know have a lot of knowledge about how to troubleshoot generators. Um, a lot of times, we'll have the generator vendor leave someone on site a tech to make sure that uh, that that power is good. So um, add a couple commentators, some production assistants, and uh, you pretty quickly start getting into the, the 20, 30 person range.
0: And I'm guessing based on the descriptions of the jobs that you, just, you, you gave us there, that these are specialty roles that require skilled training. These are not people that you just dragged in off the street and you said, hey, you sit there.
1: Unfortunately, they are extremely specialized because of the equipment that they have to work on, and uh, it's you know this equipment is pretty much only found in broadcast trucks or broadcast studios. So it's not something that you or I would have at home, you know, to work on a podcast. Um, it's equipment that unless you're working on it year round, it's very hard to be very proficient at it. So that's also part of the cost: is that these are experts that are very good at what they do, but um, you know to use the equipment that we use, it, it, there's a pretty steep learning curve. So I have people volunteer all the time, you know, oh, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a videographer, I'll come help out. But when you look at a broadcast camera, even me, you know, I come from a, a videography background, I can pick up a DSLR or a Sony FS7. If you're, you know, if you're a camera person, a, a camcorder of some type and do fine. But most people have a very hard time operating, you know, a broadcast camera alone. So yeah, part of it is just the, the specialized roles and getting them there too. You know, when we get into tough to get to markets, there aren't a whole lot of people that understand this equipment that live in Boise, Idaho. And so sometimes you have to travel people in, which also adds to the cost.
0: And, uh, you know, since we're talking costs, these people are professionals. They have a special skill. Uh, they probably earn special skill level wages. You know, how much are we looking at as far as paying you know, macro level paying the people who are there doing what is required to get a good quality, sustainable, repeatable product.
1: Yeah. Most of the crew in the truck will make somewhere between six and $800 a day. And that's for a, a hard 10 hour day. Um, this is, you know, and this is something that we run into with bike racing a lot that we just haven't really adopted in the sport yet, but a day is 10 hours and uh, you get into overtime after that. And for anyone who's ever worked at a bike race or volunteered at a bike race, you know that your day is far longer than 10 hours and you don't get overtime. I don't know that there's a single position in bike racing that, you know, is is paying by the hour and paying overtime. But, uh, you know, the TV crew whose other clients are the MLB and NFL and, you know, corporate productions, they expect overtime. And uh, that's part of it too, is trying to keep these crews to a 10 hour day so that we don't have to pay overtime and, you know, it gets more expensive for the event who's ultimately paying for these things. So uh, yeah, that's part of it. But generally between six and 800 bucks a day for uh, the people in the TV truck. And that includes um, a couple half hour breaks on a, on a 10 hour day.
0: So I I promised you in the green room when we were talking a little bit that we were going to have a conversation about lessons learned. You know, we've been in the live stream era for the last 15 years. You know, I remember, I don't know why, I have vivid memories of Walterboro. You know, that race during the spring, like in 2007, 2008 timeframe watching what looked like GoPro cameras positioned on corners. Last year with the ACC and the work that you did, there was a dramatic step up in the quality over what had been previously available with USA Crits. And and frankly, USA Crits was, that was it. As far as large scale live stream, we had a couple of one-offs here or there, but USA Crits was, that was it. You learned some lessons, clearly learned some big lessons between 2019 and 2022. What are the biggest lessons that you learned during that time that made last year so much better, yet still acknowledging that we've got room to grow?
1: You know, I shouldn't take a lot of credit for the ACC broadcast. There there wasn't any magical sauce that went into those things. The ACC broadcasts were better than the USA Crits broadcasts because the budget was bigger. And that's really, you know, the 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 bottom line. There's no there's no magic in making TV. There's, you know, there's no way that anyone, me included, can pull a rabbit out of our hat and make things cost less. A scissor lift costs what a scissor lift costs, a generator costs what a generator costs, a camera operator costs what a camera operator costs. And, you know, there's really no way to cut those corners. So, you know, I don't know that there really is a lesson other than you get what you pay for. And if, you know, if you want a top quality product, you need to spend at least, you know, you can't expect to get a Maserati with a Honda Civic budget. So we, you know, we, we saw that very clearly with what we got with USA Crits, which, you know, for the budgets that they had, I probably couldn't have done much better. You know, you're, you're talking about prosumer gear and um, unexperienced crew. And, but if that's the money that's available, that's sort of what you do. So I think, you know, the, the biggest change between the USA Crits era and the ACC era was the way that it was funded. Um, and the ACC did break some ground last year in that part of it in that you know they received money from outside for the very first time really in american bike racing someone sold the rights to an american bike race which i you know i don't think should be overlooked usa cycling was actually the the first to do it with their flow deal you know all the usa cycling national championships are, are on flow which means that usa cycling was able to you know Extract value from flow in the form of money for the rights to their broadcast. That's something that California could never do. Colorado could never do. Utah could never do. But these crits have found buyers for their content. And it's the first time in, you know, American skinny tire bike racing that people are getting paid for uh, their live content as, you know, event owners. So that is signaling a shift. Um, It's not going to solve everything, but it is worth pointing out that, that, you know, that was a pretty major change um, going into the ACC last year was that there was funding coming from an outside source, coming from a broadcast partner. So that allowed us to do what we did with the ACC and that allowed those shows to be what they were because they simply had the money to pay for it.
0: Can you in any way take credit for the Flowhawk?
1: I, I do take credit for pioneering the first FPV drone in crit racing. Um, you know, we did get that live to air in uh, in Aniston. The Flowhawk has been adopted by Flow Sports for their, you know, their drone, which, you know, we've we've used in a lot of races. But uh, yeah, I take credit for the, the first FPV, first live FPV in crit racing in Aniston.
0: And now, obviously, we've got the Echelon Racing League drone, which has flown at a lot of races and provided us with very different and um, some would say unique perspectives on what's going on. And, you know, like when that was first brought in, it was, wow, that's what it really looks like. Um The bringing of a second person into the announcer's booth last year was a huge step forward. You know, you found really great co-commentators. Obviously, when you did Nationals, you had Lauren Tucker Hall with you. But, you know, I think the first time I really saw it and really felt like somebody was adding some extreme value was, you know, with Christian Armstrong and Boise. And then later that day with Daniel Holloway. And Daniel Holloway has become somewhat of a, a cult sensation in bike racing because he's been not afraid to to bring his level of knowledge and expertise and just say, well, that was stupid, you know, just that level of frankness. What was it that brought you to the point where you're like, you know what, I need somebody sitting right next to me who has the chops, you know, to tell us what is going on from the perspective of, I did that at the elite level for X number of years.
1: Yeah. I mean, no one will ever have insight into the sport the way that a bike racer who is in it does. And, you know, I'll I'll never be able to bring those insights to fans. And, you know, frankly, that's not my job. You know, my job is is, as a, a play by play commentator is to sort of deliver what's happening and then let the analyst do what they do best, which is to kind of explain bike racing. So, you know, with the ACC, we really focused on, on bringing in people that truly understood these courses and understood these races, you know, and how they played out and not just having people there because they were, you know, bike racers or commentators or, you know, whatever the other qualifications were. And I also told them to, you know, let kind of let your personality shine through. You know, I, I, uh, with all of our analysts throughout the year, I think what what made a lot of those shows really fun is that we were able to kind of let them be who they were. And and I think that shined through with Holloway more than anyone. But, uh, you know, part of it is that we want their unfiltered opinion. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier of, you know, the role of sports media. Is it purely to, you know, this journalistic endeavor or is it OK to have an opinion? Say that, you know, that was a dumb move or that was a mistake or whatever it is. And so, you know, I really wanted those analysts to to have some opinions and express those opinions, because that's what makes, you know, the conversation around the sport. And that's what makes the engagement great in, in crit racing.
0: Why don't we kind of start to wrap it up here in this final segment about the numbers of the sport and the numbers of the broadcasting. I don't want to say this is the last question because it's definitely not, but it's the last topic. Let's go down that path. You know, when I started this podcast, I went down the rabbit hole of figuring out how to niche down into an area of cycling that didn't have anything so that I could build my own and bring it up. But the 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 lesson that I learned from that is you have to not only look at how many listeners you have or how many viewers you have for a specific episode or for a specific broadcast, you have to look at how many people exist within that world that you could potentially reach. You know, now I know that you have data out there. You know, from doing these live streams, what is the type of macro level data that is being generated that can allow us to ask the follow-on questions about how many people are out there. What is our pool? What is our audience? How do we market to United Airlines and say, "Listen, these are the number of eyeballs that you'll get from sponsoring the sport."
1: Yeah, I mean the numbers don't lie, obviously. And and when you do get into those conversations with big brands, that's one of the first questions that they ask is how you know how do you quantify this and and what's the pitch? And the truth is that the numbers from you know a a quantif Quantitative state are are not great. We are a uh, midday, midseason MLB game between two teams that don't matter, you know. And uh, when you look at it in this context of like, they could just run reruns of you know Jersey Shore and get hundreds of thousands more views than you know an extremely expensive live stream production, but where we do thrive is on the quality of viewers and that means that when people do come to watch bike races and, and viewers are logging in generally they're staying for extremely long amounts of time numbers that you know you that marketers would would only dream of if you were talking about other you know internet content and, and that's there's a lot of value in that. So we'll never compete on we had you know x number of viewers because the you know the fan base just isn't there and and it's a chicken and egg situation trying to build that fan base with these you know with these things but when we can say that we you know 80% 80% of these viewers are sticking around for X number of minutes. And when we're talking about an average of like three, four, five seconds for internet video, being able to go to a marketer and say, you know, on average, our viewer watches for 18 minutes, that is hugely valuable because you can do a lot of marketing to somebody in 18 minutes. So, While we don't compete on, you know, the high end numbers of how many people are watching, we do compete on the quality of viewers. And, you know, if that's the viewer that you're after and there is value to, you know, whoever these people are watching, that's where Criterion Racing can really shine because, you know, our fans are rabid, even if they are not massive in number.
0: So let's look at qualitatively across uh, a variety So if you look at the NFL, we're looking at like 15 million viewers for a game. NFL has 16 or 17 games during the course of a year for a single team. You can start to see the numbers adding up. If you look at baseball, for example, you look at baseball and, you know, you'll get 15,000 people at a Pirates game. You're a Pittsburgh guy. This year you had 15,500 average people in attendance at the game on a single day. I can't find the ratings for the Pirates, for TV viewership, but I can find the ratings for the World Series, and this year the ratings were the lowest they've ever been, and that was somewhere around 10 million viewers. An average, and I don't know why the statistic is in my head, I swear to God, I said it once on this podcast before, but I think I might've written it. You know, the average Cubs game, growing up in Chicago, huge Cubs fan, You know, you had 144,000 people watching a Cubs game. That's a lot of eyeballs for one of 162 games during the course of the year. You know, you said a midday baseball game against two teams that don't matter. You know, what is that in terms of numbers? It's clearly not 17 million or 15 million for an NFL game or even for the World Series are we talking like 30, 40, 50,000 people watching a crit on a live stream? Is that what the macro numbers are telling you?
1: That's the ballpark. Yeah, we're pretty close with those numbers. Um, which are not quite, you know, network TV numbers, they're not quite even regional sports network numbers, but it is getting up there. You know, you can you can get into some poorly watched network sports that get in the low 100,000 viewers. A lot of those are just because the TV was left on from, you know, a, a previous show or, you know, it's it's running in an office somewhere that has a ratings box. So, you know, part of that is, is the value of being on a network. But, yeah, generally we're in the, let's say, mid five figures uh, would be considered a, a good turnout, I think, for for a crit stream. And the absolute worst TV shows on TV right now are doing, let's say, low 100,000 viewerships.
0: All right. So we've got an idea of where we are, where we need to go. Like, what are the numbers we need to hit in order to grow? You know, what are the things that are impacting the quality of are viewership? Are there certain environmentals or time zones or start times of races? Are there certain things that show trends during the course of the year where this type of race is more popular than that type of race?
1: You know we don't know we uh we're not doing that kind of data driven research to figure those things out you know we're not there is no group that's testing what's the best start time you know what what time performs the best one thing that I've always wondered is what would happen if we did a live stream on a weekday, because what are bike racers doing on the weekend? They're riding their bike. You know, what are cycling fans doing on Saturday? They're out training. They're doing stuff. We're active people. We're, you know, we're out of the house on Saturday and uh, you know, it, we're, we're certainly not sitting on the couch watching racing, but Tuesday night, seven o'clock, it's a good time to watch crit. And so I've always wondered, you know, what if, but that takes such a, you know, broad cooperation of you know having an event that's gonna that's gonna move to a tuesday night and making sure that the riders are gonna go and make the trip on a tuesday and you know it it all everyone has to get on board but there are a lot of unexplored things in you know bike racing media that we've just never been able to try and we'll never know until we try so you know the data doesn't lie but that is one thing i would love to see would be a weeknight uh criterion stream
0: well i mean that Walterboro race that I have memories of even going back as far as like 2010 is like a Thursday or a Tuesday night race. I remember that specifically because I came home from work for it. You know, and you do see college basketball games being played on Wednesdays, Thursdays, Tuesdays. You see football every day of the week except for Tuesday and Wednesday, I think. You know, clearly these other sports are, are figuring out that You can't battle just over a Saturday and Sunday. You have to go for the full scope of things. But I'm wondering, like, if you look at a race like Littleton, you know, which starts at nine o'clock mountain time, which is 11 o'clock here in Washington, D.C., is that impacting the number of viewers? Because the vast majority of people in the United States live in the Eastern time zone. Or live in the central lane.
1: Absolutely. And if you're in the Eastern Time Zone, you probably have a, a ride Sunday morning and you know you're up at six AM to hit the seven o'clock group ride. So you're not staying up, you know, past eleven to watch the bike race. So, you know, there are options for on-demand viewing, and of course you can go back and rewatch it and things like that, but there will never be an experience like, you know, watching it live and sharing it with other people. That's, you know, and this goes back to the good old days of when we used to live tweet races. You know, I remember the the community of being on Twitter. Twitter and like everyone just watching for these hashtags to come in, and then we would all comment on you know whatever the the live tweet update was, um, and that that was the you know that was sports media whether we knew it or not you know the people that were live tweeting races we were engaging in this you know discussion of of criterium racing um, and our only information about it was you know the tweets that were coming through on Twitter so
0: I think it's hilarious that you bring that up because. Okay, so we can't we don't live tweet as much anymore. I definitely did it uh with armed forces, for example, but last year, Benton Park Gateway Cup, courtesy of the fine folks at uh Alliance St. Louis, I had a four-hands beer in hand and I was live storying on Instagram the Benton Park men's and women's races and people were following that. We had no streaming coverage, but just me standing there on the side of the road putting a caption with a 15-second video, you had people buying in and following along.
1: Yep. And that goes back to, you know, creating multiple touch points where people can can follow the sport. Um, and, you know, Instagram stories are, are one thing that's going to get them to the live stream because you, you look at these stories, but that's also just another form of storytelling that, you know, we absolutely need to do. We're also terrible at this of, you know, using all of our different media channels available. You know, how many people are TikToking, how many people are, you know, Snapchatting hardly any. Um, and we wonder why we don't have any kids coming into the sport. You know, how come 13 year olds aren't into bike racing. Well, it's because we're posting on Facebook and Instagram, which, you know, at this point are, dare I say, boomer platforms to these kids. So, you know, you got to fish where the fish are. And, uh, part of that means, you know, doing things like covering races through Instagram stories, which when we were, you know, live tweeting hashtags, the Instagram story didn't even exist. So, you know, now we're into this short form video content era where, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time making 15 and 20 second videos because that's the new, you know new attention span and we need to adapt with that we need to figure out how to make bike racing interesting in 15 second clips and 15 second snippets because it's not always a you know two-hour live stream that is gonna bring the fans in
0: but the end result is the product that you're generating is where we want the eyeballs to go is the broadcast the broadcast supplemented by the things that i'm doing or the press conference that happens afterwards. I, I know it's scary to even talk about a press conference yeah, exactly. within the confines of bike racing. The most that you can find a bike racer is sitting and waiting at the airport post-race because he or she's desperately trying to get back to Knoxville for their job that starts at 6 a.m. the next morning. I mean, like there's certain realities there.
1: So the question of you know where the funnel goes and what's the point of the funnel, the reason that so often the funnel ends with the live broadcast is because that's your revenue generator that's the one piece of media that you're getting paid for as you know as a content creator because you have sold those rights to NBC, ABC, ESPN or outside flow bikes, GCN whoever it is, you know, carrying your, your bike race. And so ultimately that's your customer because that's the person that's giving your organization money is this rights holder. And so the reason that so much of, you know, of this media is built around funneling people to the live stream is because ultimately that's where the revenue is going to come from, because it's really hard to generate revenue from, you know, Instagram likes or TikTok views or whatever, but there is a real chance to generate significant revenue from a live stream with a broadcast partner. And so if you do have that opportunity and you, you know, have sold this to someone, then you have to follow through on your promises. And, you know, that means funneling people to the paid product, which is the live stream.
0: So what does 2023 hold for us? Let's use that as our as our presumed last question in the broadcast news media world that we live in today and, you know, that you are going to be operating in this year what is 2023 going to look like for us
1: it's going to be one of the craziest years in crit racing i think that we've seen in a long time from an organizational perspective with you know the ncl coming in new leagues starting some competition for the acc i think will be good for it so um you know i hope that leads to a positive arms race in you know the battle for Criterion racing fans and i hope it you know forces every entity involved in crit racing to to kind of up their game. So I think that's probably what you see most of in twenty twenty three is that more of these organizations and event owners start taking this seriously and acting like they have competition because now they do. And you know, it's no longer just on the next race on the calendar, but now they're competing for eyeballs, competing for fans and competing for sponsor dollars. And I hope that means that, you know, everyone steps their game up in a lot of different aspects.
0: Well, it sounds like both you and I have a lot of work uh, cut out for us this year.
1: Yeah. I am going to get on the phone with ESPN right now and try and get this sold (laughs) and uh, you can work on the press conference that uh, the elusive press conference that we've not been able to have I did look up some uh, Nielsen numbers we were I was just guessing on TV numbers earlier I'll give you two numbers Th- these are two weeks old at this point but uh, TNT their hockey coverage averaged 280,000 viewers for Bruins versus Islanders and 174,000 viewers for stars versus Sharks Um, so that kind of gives you an idea of, you know, that's a, those are low level hockey games that are doing like low six figure viewerships.
0: Oh, every New Yorker and Bostonian is going to be sending in angry letters now.
1: Bring it on. (laughs) You can, you can send those to at (laughs) Criterium Nation.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Brad, for being a part of this today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com. Go there, find out about the full bevy of shows. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. We'll be back in two weeks to apply some of the lessons that we learned here today with Brad Soner when Celine Oberholzer, Alan Schroeder... And I review the Lifetime Grand Prix docu-series Call of a Lifetime that just came out recently. So not homework, but maybe homework. Go over to YouTube, Google, whatever it happens to be. Watch the series. So you can join us in two weeks to talk about it and to hear our review of how the series ran. Join us again next time for more stories from our Criterium Nation.